Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. Welcome to the Inside Carolina podcast. John Siegley here with the Inside Carolina roundtable. It is Duke week. Game coming up on Saturday, so we figured we'd go ahead and get the whole crew in here. We've got Greg Barnes, Ross Martin, Sherelle McMillan. We'll go in that order. Greg, I know you've been sick, man, but how you doing tonight? I'm feeling pretty good tonight. It's a uh, it's always a fun time. This time of year, we're in March. Uh, one more regular season game to go, and of course, it's the big one. And this is one I suspect North Carolina will be favored in. And then we've got a, a fun couple of weeks ahead of us. Indeed. Ross, how, how's things going in your neck of the woods, man? It's good. I love these intros. Uh, things are about to get real busy. I mean, huge game on on Saturday, but it's just the beginning with the ACC tournament. Uh, you know, hopefully three games in Charlotte and then on to the first and second rounds of the NCAA tournament. So it's uh, it's lock-in time now and, uh, you know, pump for March Madness. So it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun as well. And then, Sherelle, have you already come up with your excuse on how you can skip out of work for the ACC tournament days down there in Charlotte? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to walk down probably uh, on Thursday. So it should be exciting next week in Charlotte and um, definitely in the Smith Center on Saturday. North Carolina has a ton of recruits coming in football and basketball. So expect the atmosphere to be pretty incredible on Saturday. Oh, yeah, it is going to be very, very high-level stuff. And we talked about the recruits, myself, Buck Sanders, and then the expert himself, Don Callahan. That's on the podcast that anyone can listen to. For this one, just to provide a roadmap for all the listeners, the four of us are going to be doing a roundtable of the Duke game. And then later on, Tommy Ashley sat down with Dewey Burke to get his thoughts on the game. And then finally, uh, I actually was able to speak with Michael Norwood, a former UNC player, who's on the JV team, being coached by Roy Williams, then was on the varsity team under Coach Smith. That's going to be at the end, get his kind of just his story and then his thoughts. But guys, here and now, let's go ahead and get this thing started. And, you know, Greg, I'm going to go ahead and pick on you a little bit, man, since uh, you were the sickest. And I feel we'll go ahead and try to get your vocal cords as, as much rest as we can. You know, what is the importance of this game to you aside from the symbolic UNC versus Duke rivalry? Because the talk about Carolina being a potential number one in the NCAA tournament has really picked up lately is, I mean, just beyond that, what is really, do you feel at stake on this one? Well, I think the good thing for this team is that what was the storyline after the first game? It was, oh, well, Duke, of course they lost. They didn't have Zion Williamson. And even, you know, Coach K mentioned it after the game. Even Roy alluded to it, that when you lose a guy like that early in the game, you don't really have time to plan for it. And so you're kind of caught off guard. And even though North Carolina didn't play their best, they still really blew Duke out of their own gym. And yet North Carolina really got no credit for it. Uh, And I think you kind of in hindsight, I think that's kind of a good thing for this team because they weren't able to kind of enjoy it too much. I mean, they, they certainly enjoyed it after the game, but it wasn't one where they were like, you know what, we that's one we really had to, to play hard for. We got a ton of credit for it. You know, it kind of gave us big heads. Uh, that's not the case because nobody gave them a lot of credit for winning that game. And I, I think that allowed them to continue playing the way that they have of late. Uh, and I think they're you know, operating at a, a very high clip right now. And I think going into this game, instead of saying, you know what, we've already banked a win against them. Uh, we'd like to win on senior night, but it's not the end of the world if we don't. Now there's a reason for this team 
to want to take it to Duke again, whether Zion plays or not. And I think that's still up for discussion, even though uh, Coach K made it sound like maybe Zion wouldn't play. Uh, but I, I think it's an opportunity for North Carolina to, to try to handle Duke once again, to kind of flip the momentum in this rivalry back on UNC's side. You know, after North Carolina kind of dominated this rivalry back during the Hansborough years and a few years after that, Duke really took control. But now if you're, if you're looking, I think Carolina's won, what, five of the last eight. And so this is an opportunity to really kind of cement that uh, momentum flip back to North Carolina. And then kind of to your point, if North Carolina wins this game and then they maybe win a couple games in the ACC tournament in Charlotte next week, how do you keep them out of a one seed? Now, I understand that you have to give Duke credit uh, for for playing without Zion to some extent. Uh, But at some point, you have to look at the body of work. And if North Carolina can beat Duke yet again on Saturday, then have some success in the, in the ACC tournament. I mean, if they get to the championship game and they lose to Virginia, who I think is probably the best team in the country, uh, you know, good luck trying to tell that team that's the number one seed. So this team still has a very, has a lot to play for, not just against Duke and this rivalry, uh, but for their, their future here in the next coming weeks. Yeah, and I'll jump in here as well um, on that topic. Roy's preparing – this team, like Zion, is playing. I think that's an important thing we took away from the press conference today, being being Thursday. You know, they're preparing like he is playing, um, and so I don't know if that's some mind games there with Coach K or whatnot. But uh, that's the approach they're taking. But UNC is rolling. They've won 13 of the last 14. They're trending up, and I would say Duke is is you know staying consistent, if not trending a little bit down. Obviously, without Zion, they really struggled to beat a. Very bad Wake Forest team. They won seventy one seventy. The uh, the the victory wasn't decided until the closing seconds there. So, and if they can beat Duke again, and like Greg, Greg says, they should be favored. And if Zion doesn't play, they have an even greater chance to secure that victory. You're you're looking at a really really good, actually an incredible regular season by this Carolina team that had a lot of questions going into the year, and even a lot of questions after losses to. Uh, with Texas, Kentucky, um, that Michigan game, and, and even that Louisville game in, at home um, in the Smith Center early in the ACC slate. And if they can beat Duke, beat Duke twice, um, with this big-time freshman class that the Blue Devils have, um, you're looking at one of the better regular season performances in a long, long time. There's a lot of different numbers and, and records being set with this run. Um, the, the, all the road victories, 9-0 on the road in the ACC and things like that. So there's a lot of pride at stake. Um, and you look at the record, I mean, only five losses if they can secure the victory at Duke this weekend. So there's a lot of things at stake to talk about seeding. But just from an outside standpoint, looking back at the season, it's a really special year for this group of seniors, and this collection of players that Roy's put together uh, 2018-19 year. Talking about that, a uh, question for Greg and Ross. You guys are around the team. You see them a lot. Do they have chemistry like better than some of the past UNC teams you covered? Because it seems like it, and it also seems like their confidence is maybe as, as high as I've seen it for a Carolina team in a long time. I would say, I mean, I think Kenny Williams is a key part of that chemistry. Um, and, you know, looking back at the recent teams, Marcus Page, Bryce Johnson, that team had a lot of chemistry that senior year for them. And Theo Pitts and Joel Berry were, were also – um, so tight, you could see that chemistry. But this team is, is killing it in terms of assists. So maybe that chemistry is playing more into on-the-court offensive success. They have more scores, which when the ball goes in the hoop, it does look like they have more 
on-court chemistry. Um, all these teams we've covered, they've generally liked each other. Um, I think Kobe is well-liked on the team, and his role has become so important for the Tar Heels this season. And the senior leaders, although not as loquacious and outgoing as previous seniors, um, they've been so solid, so consistent this year. Um, and I think that's really trickled down to the rest of the team. And there's a lot of important role players as well. So it, it's, it doesn't stand out above any other year, but there's definitely a lot of chemistry that I think is, is showing itself on the court, uh, maybe more so than other years. Yeah, what I would say is that I think the way this team is, is crafted, it's, it's much more serious. And I think the fact that you do have three seniors kind of being like the key guys on this team, in addition to Kobe, uh, I think that kind of settles them down, and that that helps with the chemistry aspect. But you know, this is a very serious group compared to a lot of other teams. Now, granted, we were a year away from Theo Pinson, and that that changes things dramatically. But if you go back to that first team uh, with with Theo that went to the the Final Four in the in the championship game back in '16, I mean Bryce Johnson was on that team, and even Marcus. Marcus was serious compared to Bryce and Theo. But Mark is cut up, too. And so those are just a bunch of fun-loving guys. And you go back to uh, 2012, I mean, that was relatively a, a a serious group. But John Henson, Dexter Strickland, even Kendall a little bit, those guys were really having a lot of fun cutting up. And then, of course, 09, while you know, Tyler was as serious as could be and Deion Thompson was pretty serious, uh, you know, Bobby Frazier and Marcus Guignard were you know, over there cracking jokes about Tyler while we were doing interviews, which is pretty funny. And then Danny Green was kind of his own enigma. Uh, and so this team, I don't know that it really has a prankster. And maybe you're Brandon Huffman kind of behind the scenes. But, of course, we don't interact with, with Brandon quite that much. And so it's a different vibe for sure. Um, now, does that, how does that translate? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's the reason. But I think the fact that you do have – Three seniors, because I mean, think about it. How, how often has there been a team that's had three you know, key players that are all seniors? Um, I don't think there's that many in the in the Roy Williams era, um, and so I think that plays a part of it. And that's really that's really play paid dividends on the road, especially because the the seniors have done such a good job on the road. Cam Johnson, as good as he's been in ACC play, he has been even better on the road in ACC play, which is just a kind of a tremendous feat. So. Um, I think that certainly helps, that that grounding. But in terms of, of chemistry, I don't know, because it, it, there's a good bond there for sure, like all these Roy Williams teams, but there's certainly not that that jokester that stands out like, like previous teams. And I was going to jump here quick. Greg kind of stole my, my second point about being on the road. I mean, that maturity and that seriousness, I think, really shows itself in a road wins. There was no belief in my mind that they were going to lose to Boston College. And, and obviously, they, they killed Wake at Wake Forest. And the Clemson game was a little bit tighter. These recent road games and even at Duke, there's just no question this team wasn't, wasn't going to come in and take care of business. And that confidence you can really see is portrayed by the seniors. And that goes down to the lower classmen. And to add on to that, uh, it was very interesting to, to contrast the senior day press conference, which was today, Last year was a laugh fest with Joel Berry and Theo Pinson. And, and there were some moments of, of levity today with Cam Johnson, Luke May, and Kenny Williams. But it was a lot more serious and a lot more emotional. And it was very a business-like approach to how they answered questions. And Luke May had things he wanted to say. And Kenny Williams had some really poignant uh, statements as well. So, it, yeah, it was definitely a, seri- a more serious group. And that's evident um, in how they interact with the media. And then that kind of uh, affects their approach two games um, 
and just taking care of business when it matters. Let me ask you guys about the mentality of both Carolina and Duke going into this game because Duke had the very close call against Wake Forest where, I mean, they escaped by the very skin of their teeth in that game. Carolina had the comfortable win at Boston College, but then before that, the Tar Heels really had a tough game on their hands against Syracuse. So, you know, going into this one, when you're talking about mentality, Sherell, do you think that those prior games will have any impact, or is this game just so big that it kind of supersedes all of that other stuff? I think from a Carolina perspective, Greg kind of um, nailed it earlier. <clears throat> I think UNC is going to come out pretty angry. In normal years, I, I think you saw it to some degree maybe last year, if North Carolina beats Duke in the first game, it's not that they're not as intense. It's kind of a sigh of relief, like, okay, you know, they, they got them once, so anything else is gravy. And I don't think you'll see that from this team because of how uh, the first game went down. I mean, they went in and really beat the brakes off of Duke in Cameron, uh, and they got no credit for it nationally, I think, is how they feel um, because Zion got hurt. And so that gives them a little extra motivation that, you know, not that you need extra motivation for the Duke game, um, but I think there's a little extra something there because of that. You know, if you hear, if you listen to some of the comments after the game and in the weeks and days and weeks after the game, there was definitely um, a chip on UNC's shoulder when it comes to how that game was seen nationally. I think from a Duke perspective, obviously I don't cover Duke, so I don't know a ton <clears throat> about them, but they seem a little shell-shocked since Zion went out. Um, they haven't been great. Uh, they haven't been terrible either, um, but they just seem disjointed. They seem like they're not sure exactly what to do, when to do it. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think they'll come out and they'll try to be aggressive. I just don't know exactly how they'll be because they're they're going into a, not a literal hornet's nest, but a figurative hornet's nest on Saturday. Um, and I think UNC um, is really jump on them quickly. Yeah, I mean, me personally, I think that Zion is going to play. I do not believe in K when he says, "Oh, he's he's out. We're not going to have him until the ACC tournament." And I think that you are correct there, Shrill, that they have been kind of shell shocked. Uh, with his absence. But, you know, even though that was used kind of as an excuse in the first game and all that asterisk talk, it was overlooked that Kobe White had one of his worst games shooting-wise. And since then, he's been on a tear lately. So, you know, Greg, now that Kobe has been in the game, and you can even say the same thing for, for Nasir Little, they've been through the environment. Do you expect them to have much bigger impacts on Saturday? That's a great question, John, and I think you have to look at why Kobe struggled the way he did. Was it the environment? Possibly. Um, I do think the environment at, at Cameron sometimes gets a little overblown. I mean, yeah, it's a big deal that the students are right there on the court, um, but yeah, we've talked about it on this podcast before. I mean, I've, I've I've covered games in louder venues. Um, it's just kind of an it's a unique setting for sure. It's a fun place to watch a game. Not really a fun place to to cover a game, uh, but certainly a fun place to watch a game. So I don't necessarily think it was that. Uh, I think typically you see the freshmen, especially for North Carolina freshmen, who are experienced on the road and, and play in big venues uh, well before this game. Uh, I think it was more who he was going against. And Trey Jones, you know, kid's not really a scorer, but he is a heck of a defender. Uh, and he, he really frustrated what Kobe wanted to do. And I think that more than anything is why Kobe struggled. So, does he have an advantage playing at home? Sure, of course. Uh, will he learn from that experience? We'll see. Um, you know, I don't know that he's played as many good guards 
uh, in the last couple of weeks as he has since, since Trey Jones. And so we'll, we'll see you know, how, how quickly he can kind of counter that. Um, you know, it's hard for him to play much worse for sure. And I think that's one of the unique things about that game in Durham that people overlook, especially at a national level, is yeah, Zion didn't play, but Kobe White had one of his worst games of the year. He was a non-factor. And North Carolina was 2 of 20 from 3, one of the best three-point shooting teams in the country. Couldn't hit anything, and yet they blow Duke out of the building. Um, and so that speaks to a lot of the other things that North Carolina did well. And I say that to stress the point that you know, North Carolina – doesn't necessarily need Kobe to have a huge game. I mean, would they take it? Of course they would. Uh, but you know, they've beat Duke handily without him playing his best. What they need him to do more than anything is is to limit the turnovers. You know, he had uh, twice as many turnovers as he had field goals uh, in, in that game at Cameron, and he can't do that. He's got to do a better job taking care of the ball. Uh, he can't allow Duke to have easy buckets when he's you know, losing the ball at midcourt, things like that. And so that really comes down to kind of the mental composure uh, and understanding what you can and cannot do. And he, he's done a lot better job with that as the year has gone on. But I think this is going to be a good test for him because, you know, as I said earlier, this is the last regular season game, but it's also the, the very first kind of big game setting yourself up for the postseason run. Every game from here on out matters. And, you know, we're at a point where you can't get into the tournaments and if you have just a really bad game like he had at Duke, if you start doing that kind of thing, then all of a sudden you're going to get knocked out. Um, and so that's where him and Nasir really have to kind of learn and grow is you know, it's not necessarily what your best game is, it's what your worst game is. You know, it's the whole golf analogy. You know, golf's not about a, your best shots, it's about your worst shots. And that's where it matters is kind of limiting your mistakes. And if you can do that, you can lean on your teammates to really be productive. And that's the, the great thing about this team is when you've got guys like Kobe and Cameron and Luke and even Kenny and Nasir when those guys are on, you've got legitimate scoring weapons. So you don't have to do it all by yourself. Uh, and so it's just a matter of understanding that and working within the concept where you can have a lot of success without costing your team. And, and once again, I was about to have a good point and then Greg snuck it in at the very end there. But um First of all, I think it's very funny that John doesn't think Zion is going to play. It sounds like a, a classic guy, a classic UNC fan on Twitter who just does not believe what Co is, Coach K is saying and thinks he's just playing mind games. But back to kind of building on, you know, Kobe White not having his best game against Duke last time. They still won by double digits and probably should have won by even more than what they did. And I was talking to Cam Johnson and Luke May after the Boston College game up in Chestnut Hill. And they we were talking about, you know, how they won so many games on the road and why they've been so good since that Louisville uh, home loss. And they spoke to kind of what Greg alluded to there. So many different scoring op- options. I think Cam Johnson said they have four or five players who can score between 15 and 20. And I'll add they have two or three players that can score over 20 with Cam, Luke, and Kobe. And, and since, you know, in the ACC play, all three of those guys have had huge games um, Kobe, obviously, and Luke in the 30 range at times. And there's there's so much scoring, not just from those guys, but, you know, Kenny Williams added 10 at Boston College. Nasir Little is always around that 9 to 12 range. Garrison Brooks as well has had some big games, um, or, or sorry, kind of average scoring games, was done enough to really help his team. So there's just, you know, five or six players who can always really contribute offensively. They're clicking. The pace is better. They're sharing the ball at a really high rate. 
We talk about assists. And I think the confidence of this team is is super high and even more high than the than going to the Duke game because that winning at Duke is such a huge confidence builder that if they can win there, they can win anywhere. And then just like really killing teams recently, um, going into hostile environments and winning um, and putting teams away early. Um, it just proves the level they're playing offensively, the confidence they have as a team and in each other. And that's going to translate, um, I think, through these last couple games here as we head into uh, into March Madness. So a lot of things clicking at a very high rate for the Tar Heels. So let's talk about some tactics in this one, guys, because in that game in Cameron Indoor, the Heels' defensive strategy against the likes of Trey Jones and several of the other Duke um, small forwards was basically y'all can shoot the three ball all you want because we don't think you're going to make them and Duke didn't make them. So in this one though, how do you think that the defensive strategy will go? Will it be more of the same or do you think Roy might switch it up a little bit? Rel, let's get your thoughts on that one, man. Well, first off, a shout out to Brian Ives, a former IC intern and now works for ESPN, but we were talking and he said that Duke is a top 30 team on the road shooting threes. And so you wouldn't guess that because they shoot, you know, pretty poorly um, in Cameron and just a lot of times that you watch them, the Achilles heel of the team is that they're not a good three-point shooting team, but they're actually p- pretty decent on the road. So I think that step one is to realize that they're, Carolina's going to make more shots than they did uh in the first Duke game, but Duke probably will as well. I think Alex O'Connell, um, he's playing a little bit more. He's a pretty good shooter. He's someone that maybe instead of Jack White, um, who uh, missed several threes against UNC, maybe he'll have more playing time. And I think you'll see Trey Jones, even though he's not a great shooter, um, he's capable. So I think maybe you'll see him make a couple more than he did in Cameron. To really, I think the strategy is just make sure that you know you you're on RJ Barrett at all times that you help on drivers and then just don't let more than one other person get hot. RJ Barrett's going to have, you know, 25 30. That's just kind of the way they play. Um he had a really good game uh at Cameron and I think people just didn't realize it because North Carolina beat him so bad. So it's you know, Barrett is going to get his. You just kind of slow him down as much as you can and then they just have to um close out on shooters pretty well and and hope um, that the shots don't go in like they did in Cameron. So I think that is uh, kind of the strategy is to um, give up some things to Barrett to keep O'Connell and Jack White and Trey Jones and some of the other guys from uh, really hurting them. Yeah, and I, I think the uh, I think the the key for North Carolina uh, is is to do a better job kind of limiting what what Duke can do driving to the rim. Um, and uh, it kind of goes hand in hand with allowing Duke to take some outside shots. But if you look at what Duke did in the first game, like like Rel says, uh, Barrett was a force. I mean, he's very impressive. That's the first time I've seen him up close and personal. And, and he's he's a great player. And I think he kind of gets overlooked a little bit, if, if you can say that, with all the uh, publicity that Zion gets. Um, but Duke shot over 50% from two-point range in that game. They just leaned so heavily on the three-point shot. And I know if some of those came late when the game kind of got away from them. Uh, they were still jacking up threes there in the first half as well. And I, given what they've done this season, uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I know that's in the DNA of Duke, just, just to you know, shoot up a, a ton of threes. That's kind of in their blood. Um, but it doesn't really fit with this team. And I can always go back to, we talked about this before the, the first game, but 
you know, the only reason they beat Virginia at Virginia is because they have a season best shooting effort from three point range. Because what did Virginia do? Well, they had that sagging type defense anyway. They sagged even more in that game. And so Duke got some open looks from three and actually made them. You know, and if that team with Zion's making threes, forget it. You're not going to beat them. Uh, and Virginia was just kind of, as Tony Bennett said, it was slow to kind of get back out to the shooters and it cost them. Uh, but if Duke shoots their normal percentage in that game, Virginia wins that one pretty handily. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the same mindset that, that North Carolina has to have. And, you know, regardless of if Zion plays or not, is uh, you know, make them jack up a bunch of threes yet again. And, you know, I think it was interesting after the game, Roy made some comment like, you know, Duke typically wouldn't shoot um, what they did from three, which is like 21%. Well, an ACC player, they're shooting 30%. So he's right. They're not going to have that bad of a night. But if Duke shoots 30% from three, uh, you happily take it because that's their average. That's what you expect them to shoot. Uh, and you're still going to be on top because what's going to happen on the other end is North Carolina is not going to shoot 10% again. You know, it's a team that's shooting 43% from three in, in ACC play. Uh, and they've, they've been dynamic in, in that category. So you you would think that North Carolina will win that statistical category this time around after losing it uh, you know, in, in Cameron. And so that works in North Carolina's advantage. But uh, you know, keep Duke out of the lane as much as you can. Make them beat you from deep. And if they're hitting, you know, tip your cat to them. All right. And then on the offensive side of the ball for the Tar Heels, Ross, do you think that Carolina will attempt to replicate its success inside against the Blue Devils, where Luke May just feasted upon every single defender that Duke tried to throw on him? Do you think that that strategy will be one that Roy will employ in the whole, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mold? Or do you think that there could be some interesting wrinkles thrown in for this one? I mean, one thing we've always learned about, you know, covering UNC is, I mean, they're going to do what they do, and that's push the ball on offense, get out in transition, try to get easy points. And that was a little bit more difficult against Duke. And at times, teams can really have success stopping UNC there. But yeah, I mean, I think they're going to try to get inside the Luke and get those easy baskets. And that worked very well in Durham. Um, I think if Duke does not have Zion, that is a great way to beat Duke again. They didn't have any answer for that. You would think at this time they'll have a little bit better defensive approach inside to stop that. But like Greg said, UNC is going to shoot better from the outside. So they're going to spread the court. They're going to get more contributions from the perimeter from guys like Kobe, Cam, and, of course, Luke as well. So you would think they're going to get more perimeter scoring to supplement what they can do inside. But that's been a, a, a proven way to beat Duke was to go inside, get fouls, get to the line, and, and get those easy baskets from Luke May. Do I think he drops 30 again? I doubt it. They're going to have some answer for him inside. But – it's going to be inside, outside, like Roy likes, really get out and, and get as many opportunities offensively as they can um, with pushing the ball. And, of course, you know, like we talked about earlier, Kobe White's going to have a better game. He's going to be more comfortable at home. He has more experience now. He kind of obviously has gone against Trey before. Um, and so you'd like to see him score because he's been I mean, he's been the guy for UNC. Um, a couple games he's been off here and there, but he's been really big in this this. 13 out of 14 winning stretch for the Tar Heels. It's funny. The game in Cameron uh, had 87 possessions, which is uh, a ton. It's the most UNC's had this year. And I, I wonder if Duke and Coach K will think about slowing down a little bit. And I, I say that because they played that way the entire season. 
<clears throat> up and down the court, you know, Zion and Barrett and Reddish all doing their thing. And you kind of have to wonder, is that good for them? Because it's one thing to to run against other teams. And then as we've seen over and over over the years, it's so much different to try to run with North Carolina. And <clears throat> you start talking about rotations and depth and everything. There could be a situation where, you know, R.J. Barrett, who plays pretty much 40 minutes a game, Trey Jones, who plays pretty much 40 minutes a game, and Cam Reddish, who plays pretty much 40 minutes a game, um, are exhausted in the second half. So I think you'll see um, uh, you'll see North Carolina pushing tempo as much as possible. I think to the chagrin of some fans, you will see um, a, a more a deeper bench maybe than normal um, from Roy Williams in the first half to try to steal some minutes because everyone's going to be juiced. They're going to be um, winded pretty early. So I think you'll see more substitutions than normal so that uh, his key guys, you know, his key seven or eight guys are ready in the second half. But I think North Carolina's path to victory is rebound the ball and push as fast as you can and try to wear Duke out. Uh, to to back up what Sherelle's saying there, Duke's two big guys in Cameron, Delaurier and Bolden, they combine for six points, six rebounds, and seven fouls. They were non-factors in that game. And one of the reasons is one of the main reasons is because they had a hard time keeping up with North Carolina running. And a lot of those fouls were not in half-court sets. They were uh, in, in transition, and they were also when North Carolina was doing a good job attacking the glass. And so if you can take kind of those guys out of the equation uh, and you really turn it into a track meet, you know, I don't care – what kind of NBA talent you have with what Roy Williams likes to do, it's going to be tough to beat him. All right, guys, let's go ahead and start wrapping this one up. I've got one final question for you all, and I'm going to go in the reverse order that I did earlier. So that means, Sherelle, we're starting with you. If Carolina wins on Saturday, it is because of blank. And if Carolina loses on Saturday, it will be because of blank. What are your responses to those questions? If they win on Saturday, it will be because they control the glass. I really think that if North Carolina can get, you know, 10 or 11 offensive rebounds and steal those extra possessions, keeping the ball away from R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish, then they'll have an excellent chance. I think they will lose on Saturday if they shoot like they did again, shoot like they did in Cameron earlier this year, because I don't expect Duke to shoot as poorly from three. Um, so if North Carolina goes two for 20 again, I think they might, uh, lose on Saturday. All right, Ross, let's get your responses, man. Uh, they'll, they'll lose if, uh, Zion plays and they'll win if Zion doesn't play. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, um, I would say, you know, if, if Kobe White can get into that 18, 22 range in scoring and have a really good offensive game, I think UNC has a great chance to win because you know what you can get from Cameron Johnson and Luke May, I suspect. Um, so if he goes off, I think UNC has a great chance of winning. Um, and then I think they lose if they shoot under 25% from three. I don't think they can. I think Duke will have more of a defensive answer to what they did last time. They're going to have to make some baskets. It doesn't have to be incredible. They have to make some threes uh, to, to win. So that would be why they would lose. All right, Greg, take us home, man. I kind of agree with Ross about the, the Zion part, but uh... – I want to add this. The last four games between these two teams, this is what North Carolina has shot from three-point range. 33.3%, 25.8%, 29.2%, and 
but North Carolina is three and one in those games. Uh, it's I don't think it's quite a myth to say that North Carolina has to shoot the ball well from three, but I think if you go back in time and start looking when North Carolina has won this game with Roy Williams is because they've dominated inside. And we saw that in Cameron earlier this year. I think that will remain true. I think if North Carolina shoots the ball well from outside and Zion doesn't play, this game could get ugly. Uh, I don't think it's a good matchup for Duke in that regard. Um, but I think if North Carolina is able to attack the rim, uh, whether it be you know, in transition, whether it be off the offensive glass, I think that's going to be the key. You know, North Carolina shot 65% inside two-point range in the first meeting. If they can do that again, they will win. And kind of to Ross's point, if Duke is able to shut down Luke May, who's kind of the instigator there, and really do a good job controlling him, uh, that's going to make things difficult for North Carolina. And some other guys are going to have to step up. Maybe that's where Garrison Brooks or Nasir Little have to come in. Um, but I think that's the key for, for Duke to win this game is to really limit Luke, limit UNC inside, and then really try to force North Carolina to beat you from deep. Um, Because while North Carolina clearly can do that, uh, that's not how North Carolina, especially under Roy Williams, wants to be able to win this game. Actually, before we wrap this up, I almost completely forgot that we have Sherelle McMillan on the podcast, and we did not ask him about recruiting. Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot too much, Rel, but as far as the basketball recruits for this game, on a scale from 1 to 10, how excited should Carolina fans be about who's expected to be there on Saturday? Um, I think you can say a 10. Since I've been doing this, this is maybe the most impressive group they've had for a UNC Duke game. They have two of the top 20, really three of the top 20 players in the 2020 class who are going to be there. Obviously, Cole Anthony, who is one of their top targets. Um, I guess their top target remaining in 2019 will be there. And then Precious Achua um, will be there as well, who is another top 20 player in 2019. And then they have a top 30 player in 2021 in Cam Hayes. So they have a ton of talent that's going to be there. Um, One player we didn't mention is Greg Brown. He's coming in for an unofficial visit, and it's kind of weird because he's using um, he's going to be in Chapel Hill the entire weekend um, for his unofficial visit. His father played for Mac Brown at Texas, so um, I think fans should be really excited, and um, we'll see what happens. All right, well, hey, that's a great place to end it. We'll go ahead and wrap up this segment. As I mentioned at, at the very beginning, we will also be having Tommy and Dewey Burke give their thoughts on the Duke game. And then later on, we'll hear from Michael Norwood. So everyone stay tuned for that. But for now, Greg, Ross, Rel, appreciate you guys talking with me. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Let's take a moment to talk about our friends at Johnny T-Shirt. They are a very long-term supporter of Inside Carolina and the Inside Carolina podcast, and they are your place to go to for Carolina gear. Johnny T-Shirt has been a Franklin Street tradition for over 35 years, and they are one of the absolute iconic locations there on campus. They are locally and alumni-owned with a great staff that puts great value on customer service. It is really top-notch. When you go into Johnny T-Shirt, they make you feel like you are a part of the family. They are your place to go to for Carolina gear because it is their focus. They have a terrific selection of anything that you might want from memorabilia to jerseys to clothing and everything in between. And if you are a subscriber to Inside Carolina, you get your exclusive 10% off discount on all of your purchases. You can use that either in their Chapel Hill store or at johnnytshirt.com. That's johnnytshirt.com. So even if you live out of state, 
state and you still need that Johnny T-shirt fix, you can go there to order anything that you need Carolina related. So support Johnny T-shirt and support the Inside Carolina podcast. Visit their website, giantt-shirt.com, and visit their store when you're in town on game days. And we are back with the Inside Carolina podcast. John Siegel here. Going to turn it over to Tommy Ashley, who spoke with Dewey Burke earlier in the week to get his thoughts on the Duke game. So, Tommy, over to you guys. Okay, folks, I'm Tommy Ashley, of course, joined by Dewey Burke now for Dewey's take on Carolina and Duke. Dewey, not the first time we've talked about this game. I mean, we talked about it briefly earlier in the week in our post-Boston College podcast, but let's flesh it out a little bit more. Uh, Carolina and Duke in the Smith Center senior night, certainly better than, you know, Carolina-Florida State senior night on a Tuesday. (laughs) Describe the difference um, that this game being the last game of the year and then putting it all on the seniors, just describe how that feels as a guy in the arena. Yeah, no comparison. Nothing like it. Uh, We've talked for years now. I I was very lucky when I played at Carolina. I played at Kentucky. I played at the Garden uh, in New York. I played at Arizona and obviously played uh, in all the different places that uh, you travel to in the conference. Nothing compares. Nothing is close to what the Duke game is like at home in our gym. Um, I, we spoke about it in the Boston College game. It's it's You feel lucky as a senior when the every other year schedule works out that your last home game is the Duke game. Your senior night is the Duke game. That's a special thing that you remember. I remember everything about my senior night, and it was 12 years ago. And uh, the the emotions are a lot to feel as a senior, um, even one who didn't play a ton uh, like myself. But uh, those guys will be trying to manage all that. A lot of family in town and uh, really just be looking forward to, to tip off, just getting to the game itself because there's so much anticipation. These next couple of days uh, will go really slow for them. And uh, it's a time, as we talked about, you get nostalgic. You think about all the times you have run out of that tunnel, whatever, if this is your 80th time or 75th or for Cam, half that. It's, uh, it's special. It's, uh, you can't get it back. So you just hope to God you find a way to win. You never want to think about walking off that court for the last time having lost. So that'll be the focus ultimately. For you personally, and I, I've asked you this before, um, being out on that court when the ball goes up. Uh, I mean, you, you said it, there's no feeling like it, but is there any any way to quantify it um, for folks that have never had that opportunity, for maybe even never been in the building to see that happen? I, I mean, just tell me more, you know, basically. I, I want to hear um, if there's any way you can quantify it for our listeners out there that haven't been so um, lucky to be in the Smith Center for Duke Carolina. Yeah, it's nothing, nothing like I've any, anything I've ever experienced. I mean, uh, those, you know, the first two and a half, three minutes when I was on the floor to start that game, uh, the anticipation. And by the way, you know, my senior year, we needed to win to win the conference, just like these guys will have on Saturday. And we knew that. We didn't talk about it specifically other than Coach Williams saying, you know, one of our goals at the beginning of the year was to win the ACC, and we have a chance to do that tonight. Um, 
but the the level of sound and uh, an emotion that is taking place at the beginning of that game is so immense. And maybe it was extra for me because I didn't, I didn't play as much. You know, the guys that, that started every game and played all the time were more used to it to a point, but still it's different. And, you know, we scored the first basket of that game, our first two baskets and the sound of the crowd when you're on the floor, when all the sound and the noise and the focus is directly at where you are, is like nothing you can explain. It's not the same, because now I've done it for the past 12 years, as sitting in the stands and hearing it. It's not the same, uh, obviously, for many reasons. But uh, even just the sound and, and what that feels like. I mean, when you score and you can feel it in your chest when the, the fans are up, like a boom you physically can feel the sound of the crowd. That's different. And, uh, you know, it, it, it feels that way at certain times during the game when you make runs, but that, that beginning, that opening tip and the first basket and making the first key play or a dunk or a blocker, it's just unreal. And, uh, there is nothing, outside of athletics that I have experienced that could come remotely close to feeling like that. There are things you can match it emotionally, having a child or whatever, you know, things like that. But the, the physical feeling is unmatched. You cannot touch it. Were you nervous? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, but I was confident too. You know I mean? Look, I, I, we talked about it. I, I didn't play a ton and I was a walk on and all those kind of things, but you know, I had earned the right to be there with the work I had put in over four years. So sure, I was nervous. And more than anything, honest to God, more than anything, I wanted to do right by Coach Williams and Coach Smith still at that time for keeping that, it's not a policy, whatever you call it, that tradition of always starting the seniors. Uh, I wanted to do right by them. That's what I was thinking when I was playing, you know, getting ready to walk out for opening tip was I owed it to coach Williams and coach Smith and my teammates to do right by all of them. So that's heavy, right? That, that weighs on you. And uh, you know, we, we won the game, which is all that matters. Obviously is the famous game when Tyler got hit in the face, but um, you know, I tend to reflect on it more that it was a great way for it to be my last game, my fellow seniors, Ray Sean and Wes, their last game. And we went out beating them and winning the conference, which is about all you could ask for. That certainly the Tyler incident made it um, that more surreal. And you've talked about it on this podcast. You talked about it on one of the lo- local radio stations earlier in the week. But, you know, as as far as winning the game, uh, you know, and, and you mentioned this, and I've been wanting to ask this question, and I may have asked it a while back, but you talked about wanting to do right by Coach Williams and, and Coach Smith at the time. and you know, that that's the Carolina way to do things. And people kind of lately scoff at the Carolina way or whatever, given what's going on over the past few years. But talk about playing for your coach. I mean, a lot of guys say it. I get the sense from talking to you over the years that not only do you believe it, you 100% feel it deep down. I mean, just speak to being able to give Coach Williams a, a conference championship or, or play well and you know, and then he's like a prideful father. Speak to him in that regard. 
Well, that's right. What you said is right. Like a prideful father. I mean, we all, you know, I can only speak to the guys I've played with, but I, I don't sense anything has changed. We all look up to him like a father or grandfather figure. Um, and the, the, the biggest compliment or one of the biggest compliments I feel like I can give to him. And I said this uh, when I spoke at our banquet after senior year was that I never felt any different in terms of how he treated me than any of the guys he had recruited and, and sat in their homes with their parents and convinced them to come play for him. He treated me just the same. And he didn't have to do that. You know, there, it wouldn't be unreasonable to feel like a, you know, in the small little world you're in as a Carolina basketball player, as a lower class citizen compared, especially the guys I played with. I mean, ridiculous how many draft picks I played with and never felt like that ever. Um, and so when you, when you watch somebody lead you and lead your team and lead your friends so well and so right and treat you so well and so right and treat my parents and my family so well and so right when I wasn't recruited, I was just a walk-on, uh, that in turn makes you want to rip the nails out of the floor for him. Uh, and that's really how it felt for me, for us, for the guys I played with, uh, you know, the overused statement of run through a wall. But we, I mean, I'd lie in traffic for that guy and all of us would. Um, and even more amazing and, and wonderful since I graduated, he's continued to treat me like one of his own, taking care of me in unbelievable ways, always asked me how my wife is, how my now daughter is, remembers their names, asked about my parents, the same quality Coach Smith had, gives me tickets anytime I want to come, lets me come to practice, let any, whatever, anything, just like he would anybody else. And uh, it's incredible. And that's why we always all go back. And uh, I mean, I can go on and on. But uh, the point of your question was playing for your coach. It's because of how he treats us. And uh, I've said it on this podcast before, he promises at the beginning of every season not to treat us equally, but to treat us fairly. And fair to each one of us is different. And I, that's something I've used in business with the team that I work with. Um, it's something that I've shared with teams that I've coached when I have coached. Uh, it's an amazingly clear thought, I think, about how you work with your team. And that always resonated with me. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. When you said that, however long it's been since you first used that quote about Coach Williams, I've used it when I'm coaching um, either basketball or decently high-level baseball. I use the same thing. It's you know, it's not equal, but it will be fair, and you will feel that way. I sense that Coach Williams has certainly you know done that when dealing with guys like yourself or guys like you know, Hansbro or guys like Lawson or Danny Green, any of these guys that have gone on to be uh, make millions of dollars in the league, he treats everybody the same. That's what's interesting to me, and that's what's always interesting in this game because in the era of one and done, and I don't say it because of who Carolina's playing and how they've basically sold their soul to the one and done, but I, it, it's just not the same. And, and I don't think it's the same anywhere else in major college basketball 
Um, and that's what makes it special. And you can hear it in your voice when you talk about it. So that's, it's pretty cool. And I hope our listeners hear that and sense that, but let's, let's get off that a little bit, the reminiscing and let's talk about the game specifically. Now there'll be some question whether Zion Williamson plays or not. And who knows? I mean, it, when the horn sounds and he hasn't been out there, I'll believe he's not out there. That being said, Carolina's got their hands full regardless against this Duke team. They certainly whipped them pretty good in Durham, but your key takeaways or your keys to how Carolina manages to get the win in the Smith Center Saturday evening. Yeah, great question. I don't think Zion plays. That's just my that's my feeling. You know, they're getting them ready for the stretch run of the tournament and this game, albeit a big game, is not as important in terms of what the ultimate goal is for the season. So I don't expect him to play. Anyway, to your question, my feeling on this game, we cannot stop RJ Barrett. I think he's the most prolific scorer in college basketball. I would take him above Zion if I was an NBA GM. I love his skill set. I love his ability to make shots, his length. I love that he's lefty. He's unorthodox. He's hard to guard. And we've got no answer for him. I think he's going to get 30. I think he can book it. So to me, it's are we able to contain the rest of the guys and keep them or one or two of those guys from having a big night? Because if you do that, you contain Reddish. If they play O'Connell, you limit his open looks from three. If you're able to do that, I think our ability to score in waves, to make shots, to have multiple scorers gives us a great chance to win the game. What we can't have is RJ get his 30 and then Cam get 25-30 also because then really all they need is 20, 25 points out of the other five or six that play. So that to me is the biggest key is you just – I don't think we can stop Barrett. I I, I respect his ability that much. And it's going to be about how we contain the rest of the guys. Uh, At least that's, that's the story defensively for me. And then offensively, same old. We got to make shots. We got offensive rebound, try to get to the line and make free throws and score the way we've been scoring with multiple guys having big nights. We need Luke to score. We need Cam to score. We need Kobe to score. And if they all do and shoot a good percentage and we do what I said defensively, I think we're absolutely the team that should win. When I, you know, as I watched Duke play some against Wake Forest. Obviously, that game was going on at the same time. But you you go back and you look at that box score, and Barrett had 23 shots, only made 11. Nobody else – well, it looks like Jack White, of all people, had 10 shots. But Cam Reddish, two for nine. Trey Jones, four for eight. He had 13 points. Uh, Jack White hit two threes, had 10 rebounds. Not a bad day for him. But I agree. It's And it's what I said before the first game, that if – a guy like Bolden is in double figures or a guy like Jack White or O'Connell is in double figures, then you're in trouble uh, unless Barrett's going to shoot five for 25 or 30. So who draws that assignment on Barrett and and at least try to slow him down while I agree with you, you can't stop him. I mean, he's going to score. He'll shoot enough to score 25 or 30 points. I mean, if you can make him less efficient, but, how do you force him away from doing what he wants to do from what you've seen with him this season? I mean, they'll start Kenny on him because he's our best defender and the coach has been steadfast in, in stating that 
but he's just too small. I mean, Kenny's six two, six three at best, and Barrett's all six seven, six nine, and longer. And it's just too much for us to ask of him to to stop him. Uh, you might contain him and maybe get him to shoot a poor percentage, but I think he's going to get his. And maybe he puts uh, Cam on him for stretches because Cam does have the length. But I, you know, one thing we can't have is Cam in foul trouble because we need him so desperately on the backboard and off on the offensive end. So. You know, I would expect Kenny for long stretches, maybe B-Rob at times. And uh, you just do the best you can with them. When you, you're talking about a, a potential number one pick, you think back over the years when this type of player who was an elite scorer, he's going to get his. I mean, he's just – he's too good. That's a guy who can average 20 at the next level, never mind doing it at this level. So if you can, you try to force him right. If you can, you try to contest every shot that he takes, even though he shoots over most defenders. Try to limit his ability to penetrate and get to the rim. Can't foul him because he's a good free throw shooter. I mean, he's very difficult to stop. If you can get him to shoot sub 40% from the field, I think you've done your job. And then again, it's back to containing the rest of the guys and and the box score they have tonight. We'll take that box score on Saturday because we'll outscore them and uh, they can have that 70 all day, 71, whatever. So Carolina's approach on the offensive end in Cameron, they went after uh, the interior. And I think they would have done that whether Williamson was out there or not. So I think that's the approach again. Do you see that changing at all? And I know we always talk about Carolina plays inside out, but it hadn't been that way this year, but for that game, really. You know, it's, they, they've scored some points in the paint, but but for that game, it's really been more a perimeter type attack. Does Roy Williams pull the same card out of his hat for this rematch? Yeah, that was a big part of it, obviously, the win over there, but also was the pace of the game. Duke didn't mind playing in transition with us, which is fine, great, because Luke's about a good, as good a running big as we've ever had uh, and his ability to sprint the floor. So I don't think it's any secret that Duke's bigs are the weakness, uh, their bigs and their depth, um, obviously, especially without Zion. So I expect that to be more of the same, but the reason we were able to push the pace and get a lot of points in the paint and get a lot of points in transition is because we got a lot of stops and we have to be able to do that again. We got to get stops. We got to force them into contested threes and then make sure we clear the glass and run. And I think we can do that. And I also, one thing we haven't touched on yet, which you probably were going to ask, I think Kobe plays a lot better. Uh, we, We spoke at length in that first podcast about the moment and the, the hugeness of the game allowed him to get sped up. And I think he'll be much more comfortable, not only in our own gym, but just having done it once. And as good a defender as Trey Jones is, Kobe's got some size on him, and I expect him to continue the role he's on and hopefully play very well. So I do think we'll get out in transition and hopefully get a lot of easier buckets at the rim. And their bigs are not a strong point of their team. And so we should be able to take advantage. We should be able to get them on the glass. And, and again, I really believe that as long as we contain their other guys and Barrett, as long as he doesn't have 50 and he has 30, I think it's a very winnable game. I really feel that way. Don't disagree, Dewey. It's always a pleasure. You know, it, it's going to be, I wish Zion would play because quite Me honestly, too. quite honestly, I want to see him full strength playing against Carolina full strength. And uh, who knows, you know, I believe it when I see it, like you and I talked about off the air. If he's me, 
and I got a hundred million dollars waiting when I sign a contract, I'm not playing again until I've signed that contract. But maybe he just loves Duke that much to come on back and play against Carolina in the Smith Center. We shall see. Dewey Burks, always a pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Let's take another very quick commercial break. When we return, I'll be speaking with former UNC player Michael Norwood to get his thoughts as well on the Duke game. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. You are listening to the Inside Carolina podcast. John Siegel here with a very special guest. I am pleased to welcome Mr. Michael Norwood, former UNC basketball uh, player, played guard for the Tar Heels from, let's see, the varsity seasons, Michael, were 85 to 86 and 86 to 87. Is that correct? Uh, That's right. Thanks for having me, John. No problem. Thank you a lot for, for coming on the podcast with us. So uh, you have recently been posting on the Inside Carolina Premium Basketball Message Board. And, you know, a lot of the listeners and, and the subscribers have greatly enjoyed your insight. Your threads on the post games are some of the most viewed ones on there. Um, and for those that may not know, your handle is Tay, Tayvon. I think I'm pronouncing that correct, right? Well, it, it, it's a funny story. It's Tion, and that's not mine. And I ne- I was never one to be on the message boards. And it was one. It's my good friend's account, Tim McCoy. And I just I'd look on things every now and then, but I never posted anything. And then I went to I think it was an exhibition game, and I and I woke up the next morning. I got up early. It was like five o'clock, and I was just bored five o'clock in the morning. So I went on the website and just kind of said, Hey, here's what I saw there. And, and it was pretty long post and got a whole lot of very nice things, positive feedback, and it fed my ego. And so the next time I watched the game, I did it again. And then, you know, really good response and really uh, interesting and smart questions. It was not, people going back and forth and, you know, being on the internet and being trolls, it was really interesting discussions. And so I really started to enjoy it. And then it becomes kind of a coach Smith thing where I'd sit here and with a little notepad and make notes about games before I, uh, I did my observations and I pay attention a lot more when I'm at home when I'm at a game, they're not quite as good. I tend to see a lot of old friends and more of a social event than a spectator <laughs> event. And so that's how I kind of ended up at this place where we are right now. And then so since graduating from UNC in 87, when you wrapped up your playing career, what have you been up to in the years since? Well, well, mostly about the last 28 years, uh, basically – in financial consultant type of business, uh, been in the finance world. Um, my son's a senior in high school, and I started doing uh, coaching him and my daughter, who's younger. I started coaching them really early at the YMCA and the rec, and then it became travel ball, and I really enjoyed coaching. I probably wish I would have done it earlier in my life. I didn't know how much I liked it. And then – uh, Stackhouse, I became buddies with Stack because he's from Kinston. I was living in Newburn, and my son tried out for his elite team a couple years ago, and he made the team, and Stack asked me to, to be the assistant head coach under him, 
and, and I learned a ton under Jerry Stackhouse. If, mm-hmm. if I mean, people ask all the time about the next coach. If it could be Stack, I'd take him tomorrow. He was brilliant, and I learned things. I learned as much from him almost, not not as much as from Coach Smith. I learned a ton from, from Stack about the NBA game and NBA rotations and and the you know different shots that they value and it was really fascinating. I loved it. And then I think that just carried over when I was coaching my travel ball team, my kids and stuff like that. And and I just he he is awesome. The kids love playing for him. They were scared to death of him. And <laughs> you, you know, they, they didn't we'd be on the bus somewhere in Atlanta or Dallas or Indianapolis, they didn't look up Jerry Stackhouse dunks. They always looked up Jerry Stackhouse fights because there's a lot of them on YouTube, and they thought it was so funny that their head coach was fighting whoever. See, Jerry Stackhouse is is a little bit before my time, but I have seen those same videos, and (laughs) Stackhouse was someone – that if you were going to go toe-to-toe with him on the basketball court, you had to be pretty sure of yourself because he did not back down from anybody. Well, his, his I want to say it's his half-brother, but Tony Dawson helped also coach him, became pretty good friends with Tony. Tony played at Florida State and then played overseas, and he was telling me the story how, like, eventually his mom wouldn't let Tony and Stack play one-on-one or play against each other because it always ended up in fistfights. And so they had to be, like, separated because they were so competitive and nobody's backing down. Yeah, that fits entirely with the personality that I have seen. But, you know, knowing him like that, that just adds a whole another level to it. But uh, going back to when you were playing for the Tar Heels, you had the benefit of also being coached by Roy Williams, obviously the current head coach, on the JV team for your first two years and then wrapped it up with the varsity squad being coached by Dean Smith. So, you know, how was Roy when he was in charge of the JV team? And do you have any specific memories from those interactions that you can share? Oh, it it was great playing for Coach Williams. We all knew back then that he was an amazing coach. And my freshman year, we weren't that good. And my second year, we we were loaded, and we played Chris Washburn, and we played Blue Edwards, a bunch of NBA guys, and it was fun. And, and he was this amazing coach that we used to always laugh. We we'd play a JV game, and there'd be you know ten people in the stands, and he coached it like it was Game Seven of the NBA Finals, and every time we lost. We'd do the post-game prayer, and he would basically start crying. He would tear up and apologize for not having us better prepared, and he needs to do a better job. And we're all sitting there, and we're a bunch of kind of college kids just having fun, and he took it so seriously. And, you know, he'd get furious at practice and, you know, kick a ball up in the stands. We were all at Carmichael at the time, and probably one of the funniest things was, I forgot who it was, had a breakaway dunk, and he missed it, and, and Coach just spun around, and one of my teammates, Todd Chadwick, was telling me he was on the bench, and so Coach Williams just starts screaming at everybody on the bench for the guy missing a dunk, 
and yanked him, and he just he took it very seriously. And we all knew then that we play we were playing for a brilliant basketball coach. And then how about the transition then from going from Coach Williams to <sighs> Coach Smith? I mean. I'm sure that there was a lot of overlap there, but what did you observe actually having gone through it as a player? Well, what the way I, I got lucky, um, Danny Manning was probably slated to be at Carolina, and he ended up going to Kansas, and uh, Matt Bruss was there and transferred. So there ended up being an open scholarship. And at the end of my sophomore year, uh, we were finished with JV, and so all of us, Joe Jenkins and Chadwick and John Wallerman, there's about eight of us on the JV team. We were really close. We went to spring break for a week and had a big time in the Bahamas. And I came back, and I got a message, and, and you know, no cell phones, no nothing back then. So I get a message right when I get back on Sunday from Miss Woods going, hey, Coach Smith wants you to come to practice on Monday at 3.30. And so I'm like, oh, no. I, I mean, I've spent a week in the Bahamas enjoying myself. And so we, they had so many injuries, they needed me to come practice with, for the rest of the season in the 85 season. And the first couple of days, I about died. I, I mean, I was so out of shape and had really enjoyed myself a little too much. But I played pretty well. And then – when it came around the summer after my sophomore year, coach, I forgot, somebody said, you know, I want you to try out for the varsity. And so that's my junior year. And I go, and it's funny because you were asking about the difference between Coach Smith and Coach Williams. So Coach Williams was very different as a JV coach when he was on the varsity my junior year. I mean, he was the third assistant back then under Coach Guthridge and Eddie Fogler. And Fogs is a brilliant coach. I mean, he's probably may have been the best of all of them. And so Coach Williams was all of a sudden the third assistant, and he was this background person. So it was very different dynamics than when I played for him. And I, I tried out, and I, I played okay, but I was kind of lucky because nobody else was asked to try out. And 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 Coach Smith just one day walking by me we were warming up so i you know michael i'm going to keep you on the team and just kept going i mean that was it it was no ceremony no big deal and he just walked by and said we're going to keep you and i was like okay thanks coach <laughs> and then it was <laughs> and then it was just basically off to the races from there right it was it was just with coach smith and i think coach williams does it the same way you're once you're on the team, you are the team. I mean, you're, there's no separation. I think I was the oh, – there was one other walk-on that year, James Day, and then my senior year there was one other, Rodney Hyatt. But everybody, the way Coach Smith did it, I mean, everybody, you were on full scholarship. You were part of the team. And for hierarchy, he used to say that JV counted as a half. So my junior year, I was classified with the sophomores when you went to get water when you went to, you know, your plane ticket, where you sat, things like that. But I was, once you're on the team, you're fully on the team. And then when I became a senior, I was a true senior. I was, a, you know, we rotated. I was a captain at certain games. And when we rotated through, we had five seniors. Uh, when we flew to Hawaii, I got to fly first class, and Jr. and Scott Williams had to sit 
in the back of the plane and so it was it was it was just an unbelievably fun time and just playing for coach smith it was everything that you would think and a lot more and if i have this correct your first uh, actual playing time on the varsity squad came this says on november 24th 1985 against a ucl a ucla team that had someone playing on it that I feel most listeners will recognize, a guy by the name of Reggie Miller. So what was that experience like? Well, so anybody that knows the history about there, we were supposed to be opening the Smith Center with that game. And they got construction delays, and so it ended up being Duke later on. But we're playing UCLA. We're playing playing. ESPN's is broadcasted, and back then that was a big deal. I mean, we had games that literally weren't broadcast on TV back then, and so we're playing UCLA, and we beat them by like thirty some. And I want to say that Brad Darty went ten for ten or eleven for eleven. And the one thing we remembered was Reggie Miller. They had the state out there still for the logo. And Reggie Miller made one from, like, Asheville on the state. I mean, it was deep. But we beat them by, like, 30-some. And so I got in, and I'm not thinking I'm going to play because it's UCLA. You're like, oh, I'm not going to get in. And I really mentally wasn't ready. And I just ran around and cut. I never touched the ball, thank goodness. And the next day at practice, again, Coach Smith walks by me. I'm not going to do his voice, but he goes, I bet you never thought that you'd be playing against UCLA on national TV. I'm like, no, sir, coach. I never, that was never in my dreams. Wow. That's a, I mean, to have it come from someone like, like coach Smith. And I mean, even back then you guys just must've known that you were playing under one of the absolute all time greats, I'm guessing. Right. Oh, we did. I mean, he had already, established himself as, you know, in our opinion, the greatest coach of all time and, you know, one of the greatest men of all time. And and he just amazed you how at practice he could, you know, blow the whistle to stop and tell all 10 people what they were doing. He just, I just, I've never seen somebody that could could see this big picture on the court and process everything that was happening both offensively and defensively and correct it. And just the attention to detail, uh, the, the, the practice plans being broken down to the minute, it was just uh, you, you understood why he was so successful. So during that season, 85 to 86, uh, the Tar Heels would go 28 and 6, 10 and 4 in the conference. But then your senior season, the 86 to 87, 32 and 4 overall and a perfect 14 and 0 in the ACC. With the Tar Heels facing Duke on Saturday, Michael, you guys, this was actually surprising to me, did not play Duke as your final uh, ACC game of the season. I think it was the final home game, but you guys closed it out against Georgia Tech. But in that Duke game, a 77 to 71 win would have been your final time playing. You know, what do you recall from stepping out onto the the court at the Dean Smith Center for that final night? I remember about everything, but uh, I was thinking the Georgia Tech was our last game in 86, but I could be wrong. I've never looked it up. 
because they had John Sally and Mark Price, and that was a bigger deal. I, I mean, I know people are crazy, think I'm crazy, but the Duke Carolina was not this bloodthirsty, crazy rivalry when we played. And we took care of them most of the time, and we were loaded that year. I mean, Jr. was a freshman, and Scott Williams was a freshman, and, and we had Lebo and Wolfie and Pop and Curtis and Kenny, and we just – I never once thought we weren't going to win. And so my senior game, I'm, I'm starting, and you used to play back then. You always play like Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Sunday, something like that. And just after the last game before the home game – uh, you go to practice the next day, and there's your practice sheet. And the white team is the starters, and then we were the blue team, which would always go against the starters. And that very first practice after that last game before Duke, so I'm now listed in place of Lebo as the white team. And it wasn't anything. It was just you're the white team, and you go out and you do dummy offense, and, and we do our drills and scrimmages, and for a couple of days, I, I'm just on the white team and nothing said about it. It's no big deal. And I remember before the game started, uh, in the locker room, they, they would draw up the matchups. And, you know, coach was like, Michael, you're going to guard Bricky because he's more of an inside guy. And Curtis, you're going to guard uh, Quinn Snyder. He's more of an outside. It's a better matchup for us. He just, it, there was nothing to it out of the ordinary. It was taking care of business. And it, it, I guess it probably it probably relaxed me, but also I had spent four years of of playing against you know the best guys in the country, and during the summers, you know Mike was coming back and Sam and Dudley Bradley and Phil and, and James and all those guys. So I'm sitting there going, I've been playing pickup against these guys for years, and Quinn Snyder's guarding me. I, I feel like I'd take him any day. So I, I didn't feel like I was – it was over. It was overwhelming. And I do remember one thing. Uh, Hugh Morton at the time was living, and he was a big photographer, and he was at every game. And I knew Mr. Morton, and during warm-ups, I kind of slid over to Mr. Morton, and I was like, all right, so if there's a free throw, I'm going to go talk to Coach Smith, and I want you to get a picture with me with Coach Smith. And he laughed and said, I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up. And unfortunately, it never happened. But I was trying to get a photo with Coach Smith during the game. I would have been one to keep for all time there, one to show the family. And, you know, let's, uh, let me get a funny story from you, though, since I've got you here, Michael. I mean, you were on a team with Kenny Smith, J.R. Reed, Joe Wolf, Jeff Lebo, just to name a few of the guys. You know, give the, the listeners uh, a just, uh, you know, a memory that you can recall of that would kind of you know, show what the guys' personalities were like outside of the of the actual court. Oh man, you know that ninety percent of them I can't tell. <laughs> um, and, and I was lucky because, like talking about my senior game, I was really lucky because we had Kenny Smith, Curtis Hunter, David Pops, and Joe Wolf. And myself, so we had a natural starting five, and, and that that helps that that we all had our positions, and they were great guys, and I'm still in touch with every. You know, I texted with Pop two days ago. Uh, Wolfie texted me today. 
Curtis called me the day before, the day of the Duke Carolina game. Kenny and I trade text and Lebo. I do I actually coached his son, so we're all still really good friends. Jeff Denny from that team, Marty Hensley. So we've all stayed in touch for thirty some years. Um, all right, how about this? Know. Did you guys ever pull? What about a prank like on one of your fellow teammates? Well, the one at Duke, uh, it was early in the season. The one thing I remember doing, and people do this all the time, we let Ranzino was dribbling out to lead us out, and everybody stopped, and Ranzino jogged out into the Duke crowd with a basketball and nobody else behind him. And uh, he, he, that was, yeah, he, he didn't take kindly to us letting him get hung out there in front of the Duke guys. But, um, yeah, it was it was just a fun crowd. It's a really great crowd, and, and – you know, Jr. is now coaching up at Monmouth, and, and you know he was so much fun to be around. Uh, he was just nonstop, and and it, we were just a really close group. We thought uh, we thought our senior year we were loaded. I mean, we really thought we should have won the whole thing. Uh, we got beat by UCLA on the way back from Hawaii because I guess we could tell the story thirty years later. The uh, so we we win the Hawaii something I forgot which tournament it was back then. And they gave us a day off and we really took advantage of it that night and way out way too late. And then we flew back. We had practice before the UCLA game and we couldn't make layups. I mean, everybody's struggling and had done too much the night before. And we were atrocious during practice. And then UCLA ended up beating us by ten or fifteen, or and that was like, yeah, we we we, we kind of messed up there, but we're college kids, and that's what college kids do. Yeah, it does happen sometimes. Well, let's go ahead and turn the the talk to the current year's Tar Heel squad. You know, early on there were some concerns, especially regarding the post presence. But here lately, I mean, everyone saw them dominate the inside against Duke. Kobe White has absolutely been on fire. And then Cam Johnson really leading the way. What have you seen from this team as they have developed from early on to where they stand now, number three in the entire country? Well, I think we've definitely grown so much. I mean, you go in the season and you didn't, understand, you didn't know what are we going to get from our post players. You know, what's Kobe going to be like? I, I saw Kobe play in high school several times. Uh, I, I, I loved watching him play because he's so aggressive, but you just didn't know how it would translate. And the, one of the, a couple of things I wrote about earlier, I noticed we're just really balanced, and we moved the ball well, and we had a bunch of guys that could get points. And, and Cam Johnson early on, I was like, he's our best player. He is so good. And I've said this a bunch. I wish he was more selfish. He doesn't force any shots. He moves without the ball. He's always catching it, ready to shoot. He reminds me of a taller Clay Thompson in that he's always square. And he's always ready to shoot. And I I just I love the way Cam Johnson plays. And now he's starting to put it on the deck more and attack the basket. Uh Luke May early had a weird kind of year where some sloppy turnovers and this and that, but I think that was 
sometimes those things happen. And now the last couple games he's playing better. And, and you're right about Brooks. Brooks, Brooks has he has been playing his role. And, and a lot of times in basketball, everybody wants to be the leading scorer. We all do. We all have egos. But and I'll give. I think I saw Coach Calipari say it one time, and I give him credit for it. He says he preaches for you to be a superstar in your role. And I think uh, Brooks has been a superstar in his role. He is fighting like crazy, uh, playing defense. He's rebounding. He's putting back shots. He's moving the ball. And and if he gives us a, a ten and eight game or a twelve and seven and play good defense. He is being a superstar in his role. It's the same way where Seventh Woods has been a superstar a lot in his role, where Kobe's going, having a struggle for a while. Seventh comes in. He settles the team down. He has been excelling at what his job is. And and this team, to me, I feel like a lot of these guys have figured out their roles, and Coach Williams always does this, where early in the year he tries a million different combos and everybody wonders what's going on. And then by the end of the year, we're, we're, we're finally tuned. We're playing like a team. And that's what I see this team is everybody kind of knows what they're supposed to do. They know what they're expected of. And, and that's what makes us dangerous is just this balance. Uh, you know, Cam and Kobe are our leading scorers. There are two they can get their own shots. They're the guys that they play well on the road. They're our big-time players. But then, you know, Naz has had some games where he's helped. And, and Kenny, he'll shoot better. I know he will. He'll be fine. And Luke has played well. So I just like the makeup of this year's team. Well, and then facing off against the Blue Devils, I mean, the heels are – in the contention for a number one seed in the NCAA tournament, where if you had mentioned that a month ago, I don't think anyone would have believed you. So this is a very important game. And, you know, it's, it's kind of your atypical Duke game compared to what coach K has had recently, where this year prior to the Zion injury, Duke was very much beating teams on the inside shooting twos. And they're just not very good from the outside. And so I think that that really does change how the Tar Heels are facing up. And I actually think it's more of a benefit to Coach Williams' style of defense that Duke is just not a very good three-point shooting team this year. So when you're looking ahead to this game, you know, with or without Zion, we'll see if he plays or not. What do you expect Coach Williams will do to combat you know, the, the strengths of this year's Duke squad? Well, the thing you have to be, I think Coach Williams would be careful about is is planning on Duke not shooting well. I, I don't care what the numbers say. I, I, if I'm coaching, I'm saying they're going to make everything they shoot. So you're going to stick to your principles. You're going to close out hard. You're not going to let them. You're not going to foul when they drive. I, I, I'm not going to in the first game. It was noticeable that we backed off Jones and let him shoot the entire time, and he was awful. I don't see that happening again. So I think what you'll see Coach Williams do is just play it straight up. And then if 
if Jones is struggling or Barrett's starting to drive too much and we can't contain him, maybe you make an adjustment. But the one thing Coach Smith was always always about was we don't worry about the other team. We worry about ourselves. And if we do things like we, we're supposed to, it doesn't matter what they do. So if they're shooting well from three or not shooting well for the season, our principles should should carry us through the game. And it's like you're, you're talking about not being old enough. Like my junior year when we opened up the Smith Center against Duke, everybody knows that's the game that Steve Hale had 28 points, and it was all on backdoor layups. And, and not a single one of those was a set play. It was just us taking care of business, doing what, what we're taught to do and read and react and play the game. That was, you, you asked me earlier, you said you looked up my score, I was one for one. That was the same thing where we, you just read and react and you played Carolina basketball, and I got my back door for a layup. And I think that's what you're going to see is you're not going to see anything funny from us, but then, you know, Coach Williams, I would not be surprised going along your point of them not being a good three-point shooter to see us throw in a zone of possession or two. Because if you're starting to struggle and then all of a sudden you throw a, th- throw a zone on them and they've got to look for those threes, then it gets in their head. But I, I wouldn't see that to start with. We're not going to play off of them. We're, we're going to just play. We're Carolina. We don't care who you are. We're going to play the way we want to. And then maybe you see Coach make some adjustments. So that's what I see. You know, I fully expect Jack White to hit four threes and O'Connell to make three or four threes. And I expect, you know, uh, Trey Jones was one for 11. I fully expect them to make shots. So you can't count on that poor shooting going into a game. You've got to stick to your principles, stick to your fundamentals. And and if if we execute like we know we can, we'll be fine. Well, and you talk about Duke not shooting well. You know, Kobe White, he also had a bad game in that win in Cameron, which was crazy considering that that game, it was a blowout just from basically start to finish. And let's kind of wrap things up there. You know, having played in that environment, Michael, and Kobe, I think the moment just kind of got to him. Same thing for Nasir Little during that first Duke game. Now they're playing in front of the home crowd in the Dean Dome. How do you think that they will handle it as freshmen that they have been through the entire season now? And do you expect them to have bounce back games compared to when they played Duke the first time? Uh, Absolutely. And and the hardest, it it alternates every year and it's, you know, at Duke first, at Carolina first, the hardest Duke Carolina game is the first one. And so you're going to Duke with all the hype and you're in that high school gym and not only is Kobe a freshman, and, and I actually talked to Naz before I was at the JV game and he was there, he'd never set foot in, in Cameron. So you, they don't know what to expect till they get there, and it's the first one, and it's easy to be overwhelmed. You're so hyped up. You're out of breath within the first two minutes. It's an insane environment. So that was very predictable. And he was going against Trey Jones, who's one of the best defensive players in the country. So 
that did not surprise me at all. It, I'm like you, it surprised me that we beat him so comfortably with him playing so poorly. So usually the second Duke Carolina game is usually a better played game. The, the nerves are gone. It's the end of the season. Both teams are going to, I promise you, both teams are going to shoot it better. They're not going to turn it over as much. It's going to be a cleaner game. And I think Kobe will, will, will definitely bounce back. And I think Naz will bounce back. The one thing, this goes to my coaching days, I would talk to both of them, and I would have said the same thing before the first game, is, is don't try to be somebody you're not. Just be yourself. Your, be yourself is, is good enough. And I could see I, I would be worried of a, of a Kobe deferring to the seniors. It's senior night. I need to get cam shots. I need to get Kenny shots. I need to get Luke shots. And, and he, he may defer a little too much. I, as a coach would be, you just need to play your game. Don't worry about this, the, 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 the seniors. Don't worry about this or that. You play your game and we'll be fine. And that'd be something that I think, I think he will, but something to look for is don't defer. You're, you're one of our leaders. I mean, he is, he is the best celebrations of anybody on the team when stuff goes well. Be yourself. Don't, don't take a back seat to anybody. And then Cam, I just, again, I've had a man crush on Cam all year. I know he's going to do a good job. Yeah, Cam has unquestionably been the Tar Heels' best player in ACC play, in my opinion. We will see if they can keep it going on Saturday. But, Michael, wanted to say thank you very much for talking with me today. Uh, We'll hope to get you back on, maybe get some thoughts as the Heels head into the NCAA and ACC tournament. But for now, thanks again, and we really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by T-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.